0: Now, what you have today in place of an outline looks like a little mini novel. I know. Uh, So let me tell you what's going on. Uh, There won't be any blanks for you to fill in today. Oh, that's the only way I can stay awake, Pastor. Okay. Uh, But I wanted you to have all my notes. Normally, what you have in front of you is only what I see, what I would preach from. And I would just give you an outline. But what we're going to discuss today is so important. I didn't want you to be without anything uh, that we cover. I wanted you to have all the scripture. I wanted you to have uh, a lot of the things that I probably won't say. Because when I have my sermon in front of me, I'll skip around and there's parts that I don't mention. And But I want you to have everything uh, because it's very important what we're going to talk about today. Uh, I would really encourage you. Uh, to turn your ears up today. Uh, maybe some Sundays they're maybe on medium, you know, crank them up to high today uh, as we go over. For some of you, this may be a little bit of review. For some of you, it may be new information, uh, but beneficial to everyone. And if you uh, I'll direct you at certain points in your packet of where you're supposed to be Uh As we look over this material and it comes out of our launching point is first Thessalonians chapter two, verse 13, uh, where if you look at that with me together, uh, Paul uh, is commending or thanking God for these Thessalonian Christians because of their attitude about the scriptures, what we would call our Bible as much of it as they had at the time. Uh, when he first went to them, verse 13, 1 Thessalonians two, he said, for this reason, we meaning he and his teammates also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard. That's interesting. They heard the scriptures. What how do we usually get the scriptures? We read. Remember, they're in the process of writing scriptures. So uh, they heard the word of God from Paul, and they accepted it. And here's where we really want to zero in today. They accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Because many today say, oh, the Bible, that's just words. That's a book that some men wrote, Uh That's just a collection of old writings from ancient times uh, that doesn't really mean anything to us today. Uh, But we understand differently, don't we? Uh, And we'll see the Thessalonians when they heard it. They didn't think it was just the musings of some crazy men from Galilee. They actually believed that the words that Paul taught them were the words of God. Now. Uh, We want to look at this for a moment. I don't know if that shows up. You can barely see it. But uh, anyone aware of what was going on Friday night? Anyone stay up till midnight and go outside and then you were disappointed because it was cloudy? You know, yeah, Lisa. Sorry. I was sawing logs. She was out there in the driveway trying to see all this stuff. Uh, I guess on Friday there was a uh, galactical trifecta is what they were calling it. You had three cosmic events all at the same time. And they said, don't worry, some of it you can catch again in 2022 if you missed it. Uh, But we had a snow moon. Uh, I'm not exactly sure what that means, except the brightness and the color. It's called a snow moon because February for most of the nation is when they get most of their snow. Uh, Then there was a partial lunar eclipse uh, where the earth blocked a little bit of the shadow of the sun uh, from the hitting the moon. And then thirdly. I guess there was a comet, PR-45, that uh, zipped across the sky. So all this was happening at the same time. Uh, and they say for the rest of the month, you might be able to see some of it. But I guess Friday night, the comet was so close, it was only 7.4 million miles away. Wow, it's just right there to grab it. Uh, so, but I mean, that's close. I mean, when you start using space measurements, it kind of boggles the mind, right? Uh, but Go to Psalm 19 with me. Things such as the moon and the comets and the stars uh, and the mountains and all the little animals and the flowers and all these things. These are things that we call general revelation, revelation in the sense of God revealing or showing himself and general, in the sense that it's there for everyone, whether you're a true follower of God or not. It's a way that God reveals himself. God shows himself to the whole world by the beauty of the creation that we see around us. And we read that in Psalm 19 this morning, didn't we? Uh, that uh, what happens. And here's kind of what Psalm 19 is saying in a nutshell. And if you look there for a moment and you put it together, Psalm 19 fits very closely with Romans chapter one that we read earlier. Psalm 19 is talking about how God reveals himself to man in his creation. So Romans one talks about how man in his unbelief refuses to accept that testimony of God. The unbeliever looks at the sun and the comets and the moon and the stars and says, wow, I wonder where that came from. We've got to figure this out. When did all this show up? Where did it come from? God, That's ridiculous. There's no God. God is just a man-made crutch. Don't you know what uh, Marx said? Don't you read Marxism? Uh, Religion is the opium of the people. That's what Lenin said. You're crazy. There's no God. But we've got to figure this out, where all this came from. But the believer looks at these things and says, wow, look at God. There must be a God that exists. And even an unbeliever who is not a true follower of God is supposed to look at all this creation and say, There must be someone who created this. Uh, I see power. I see glory. You know, who is this that created this? I have a friend, uh, one of my tennis buddies from back home. He owned a bookstore. Uh, He's probably 70 now, uh, but he's a big science guy. Does a lot of reading. He's an unbeliever. Uh, That's something that I did. I played tennis with a bunch of guys and I was the only believer. Uh, But it was an opportunity uh, to share the gospel and be a witness. But uh, just talking to my friend, Danny, uh, we got in a conversation about some of these things. He goes, well, I believe he goes, I don't believe that, you know, nature and things just showed up on accident. Now, remember, he's he rejects Jesus Christ. He rejects the Bible as truth. But he said, "I, I think that it had to have come from somewhere. There's just too much order. There's just too much structure. Uh, so he said, I believe that it was created by someone or something, but I don't, I don't believe there's a God that we can know. <laughs> Those were almost his exact words. Uh, and that's what these scriptures are talking about, uh, that we should be able to look at God's creation and understand uh, that he is there, that he is powerful and that he is glorious. Look at these words in verses two and three of Psalm 19. First of all, we see that God's. General revelation of himself in nature is continuous because in verse two, he says day after day pours forth speech and night after night reveals knowledge. In other words, it never stops. It never takes a break every day when I go out on the valley view up over the ninety one and I see those snow covered mountains and I remember God made those. How beautiful, how powerful it's always going to be there when you go to the ocean and you see and you smell the crashing waves. They're there every day. It never stops. It's a nonstop testimony. I don't know how many of you are nature lovers. How many of you love to camp? How many of you love to camp? Yeah, a lot in here. So don't ever invite me to go, please. Okay, I'm not a camper. My idea of camping is Holiday Inn instead of the Westin. Okay, all right. So. But when you're out there, I do like to go for walks in the woods. I like to go to the mountains. Uh, I like that kind of stuff. But what he's saying is day after day, night after night, he's saying it never stops. It never stops. He's always revealing himself. And then he says his revelation through nature to all people is abundant because he says in verse two pours forth speech. That word pours is a very strong word. It's a picture of Water that's just gushing out and it can't be controlled. It's like that Oroville reservoir. We at home. This is home. I can call it a dam, but I don't want to be accused of cursing the reservoir. Uh, I guess it overflowed, right? Uh, For the first time ever. That's the picture here. That's the word pours. It's like a reservoir that bursts, it seems, and it just comes gushing out and you can't control it. As you look around at God's created world, it just is overwhelmingly abundant that he is there and that he is powerful and that he is glorious. And you either have to reject it or deny it. You can't make it go away. It's there. And by the way, before I forget, we're talking about world views. We're talking about how we interpret the data. One person sees the lunar eclipse and says, there is a God. Another person sees the lunar eclipse and says, there's no God. But that had to get there somehow. It's really where you start, right? It's where your presuppositions are, as we call them. The psalmist also says that this testimony about God is clear because it says he reveals himself. It's self-evident. It's on the surface it's not something that we have to dig for to see. It's right there in our face. His testimony about himself. And then lastly, Psalm 19, these opening verses talk about how God's general revelation to people is universal. It's to everyone. Uh, look at verse three. There's no speech, nor are there words where their voice is not Heard their line has gone out through all the earth, and their utterances to the end of the world it 's for everyone, all the time it 's really undeniable and if you keep your finger there in psalms because we'll go back, but you don 't have to turn over to romans, but i will I want to read that one twenty uh, I had that committed to memory, but it all gets mushed together. Verse 20 of Romans 1 says, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and his divine glory have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that men are without excuse. The evidence is there if you choose to accept it. There is a God. He is a creator. He is powerful. And he is glorious. Look around you. And it is interesting, uh, as we think through this a little bit more, I think, uh, wait, I'm going to mention something in a few minutes. I don't want to get ahead of myself. But then as we keep moving through Psalm 19, keeping First Thessalonians 2.13 in the back of our mind, they received the word of God and accepted it not as the words of men, but as for what it was, the word of God. But this general revelation in nature is very limited. What do we mean by that? What we mean by that is there's no moral element involved. We can't see God's moral qualities of love and wrath or mercy or justice or patience and all those things about his character. We can't see those things about God by looking at creation. We can see his power, we can know that he exists, we can see his glory, but we can't know him personally. And in fact, if you look in verse one, it says the heavens are telling of the glory of God. Look at verse one again. Whose glory? God. It mentions the name God only once in the first six verses. And I'll tell you, there'll be a slide in a moment. But that's the most generic name for God that the Hebrews have. It's the name El And it makes sense because it's a general name for God, because he's talking about general revelation, how he reveals himself in the scriptures. But when you get down to verse seven, there's a huge colossal shift and you want to mark it in your Bibles. He doesn't say the law of God is perfect. He says what? The law of the Lord. There's been a name change. Lord is Jehovah. Perhaps the most personal, relational, covenant name of God. Isn't that interesting? You should all be going, oh. Yeah, thank you. Okay. He mentions now, he mentions the most generic name for himself, El, only one time in the first six verses. Then he uses the most personal name for himself, Lord Jehovah, seven times in the next group of verses. God is begging to be known by you personally. But he says, You can't know me personally by just going out camping in the woods and hanging around the trees and the mountains and the creek and the fish. You can know that I'm there, but you can't know me. That revelation is limited. And not only is it limited, what do we know from Romans 1? It is suppressed. It is suppressed. The knowledge that God exists is suppressed. What does it mean to be suppressed, not oppressed? What do you do? It's almost like a panini machine. In a panini machine, you suppress the sandwich. What are you doing? It all goes back to food, let's say. You you, Right? You squish it. You push it down. You don't let it up. You don't let it out. You want to smash it. The unbelieving heart suppresses. The unbelieving heart puts God's revelation of himself in nature in a panini machine and smooshes it. And by the way, if God did not personally intervene in your life to open your heart to believe in Christ... You would still be suppressing the truth. Romans 1, 18 says that men suppress the truth. That's all of us without a divine intervention. So in Psalm chapter 19, verses 7 through 11, he switches from God's revelation of himself in the world to God's revelation of himself in the word. Word. He moves from nature, the general revealing of himself, to scripture, the very personal revealing of himself. General revelation is limited. You can't come to a saving knowledge of God through Christ simply by observing nature. You must come in contact with special revelation. And special revelation is the scriptures. Where he talked about the name change here. The generic name for God, L in verse one, his generic power and creating the shift in verse seven to Jehovah, the relational covenant name mentioned seven times. What does this mean? It means that special revelation of scripture is far superior to the general revelation of nature. And you may be thinking. Huh, that's nice. I'll just tuck that back there somewhere. What does that have to do with me? What does that have to do with you? Without the word of God, there can be no knowing God. Paul said to the Thessalonians, you received it for what it was. Not the word of men, but the word of God. He's talking about their salvation. And then he talks about how it performed its work in them. That's talking about the sanctification. They had to have the word of God to save them. They had to have the word of God to keep them going after salvation. Now, you take the person who says this, you take them to Psalm 19. Oh, I don't have to go to church. I can worship God right out in the woods. I don't know how many times I've heard that. I don't know how many times. I've, I guess we'd have to say, well, first of all, I say, no, the Bible's clear. God's plan for you is to be in a local church. Anything else is unbiblical. But technically speaking, I guess you can go out in the woods and be with God, but you better have your Bible with you because if you don't, then you're not really knowing God. So if you agree to go out and sit in the woods with your Bible, then maybe, hey. Then the next step is we'll send some other people with you so you can have church. Okay. All right. General revelation is Limited. Go with me to first Peter. There's a transition, as we saw between verse six and seven in Psalm 19, from God revealing himself in the world to God revealing himself in his word. It really mirrors exactly what Peter writes. By this time, Peter is an elderly man, we believe, as he wrote this second Peter chapter one. Second, Peter, chapter one, if you start in verse 16, what we see here, he's referring to the physical transfiguration of Jesus in front of himself and James and John. When Jesus was on earth, at one point he went up on a mountain and he had had his glory veiled because he was in his humanity and he unveiled himself in front of them. Uh, And then Moses and Elijah appeared and they got to see Jesus in his glory. So that was a physical revealing of God to them. So that's what Peter's talking about. And he's going to tell the readers of this letter, there's something more reliable than even what I saw with my own eyes. There's so many implications of what we should be thinking. Just kind of let it all bounce around in your heads. okay? verse 16, second Peter one we do not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's talking about the transfiguration. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God, the father at that moment on the mountain. Such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory in heaven, who said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven with our own ears when we were with him on the holy mountain. Now, that's something. Can you imagine you're with Jesus? All of a sudden, the veil is taken off and you see him in all his glory. I'm surprised they didn't drop down dead uh, out of fear. What did they say? We talked about this Wednesday. What did they what did the three say? Hey, do you want us to set up a tent for you three guys? Are those you know, are Moses and Elijah going to stick around and hang out? Should we build them a house? <laughs> uh, I mean, it's almost like they didn't know what to say. <laughs> so they just had to say something. But in verse 19, Peter says, and I paraphrase, but we have something so much more reliable than what we saw with our own eyes. We have the prophetic word made more Sure, Made more sure than what made more sure than the glorious revelation that we saw with our own eyes to which you would do well to pay attention like it was a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. But we know this, first of all, that no scripture is a matter of one of a man's own interpretation for no prophecy of scripture was ever made by an act of human will. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. What's he saying? Basically, he's saying the Bible you folks have in front of you. Those aren't words that I just made up, Peter says. Those words were divinely, supernaturally delivered by the Holy Spirit through my pen onto paper. So that when you are reading scripture, you are reading God's thoughts. You are reading God's words. That's heavy duty. That's heavy stuff. And ever since, the scriptures have been under attack by haters who try to deny what we call the inspiration of scripture inspired from God. So, go back to Psalm 19. So we see the general revelation being put in an inferior position to special Revelation. That's what Peter said. And by the way, what something that means to us today is that many people run around clamoring for miracles. If only I could have a miracle. If only I could have a dream. If only I could have a vision. If only I could speak in an angelic unknown tongue. That would be so wonderful. And Peter says, huh, I hate to burst your bubble there, but you have something far superior to any of those things. You have the written word of God that far surpasses any miracle or any miraculous sign that would ever appear. And a lot of people neglect the scriptures to chase after, quote, more spectacular experiences. So, Psalm nineteen six. there's a transition at the end of verse six. He's talking about the sun verses four, five and six. He's talking about the sun. And at the very end, he says, there is nothing hidden from the heat of the sun. Then he makes this transition into the superiority of the scriptures. And one author said this, the same can be said of the pervasive life giving word of God. Because it, too, embraces all of life and is as necessary for the life of the human soul as the sun is for the life of the body. So he's comparing the life giving energy of the sun to the body with the life giving energy of the scriptures to the soul. The word of God uniquely authoritatively. Ultimately, supremely addresses the issues of the human soul, spirit, mind, thoughts, emotions. Hebrews 4.12. Don't take my word for it. The word of God is living and active, sharper than a two edged sword, able to penetrate both soul and spirit, if that were possible. Joints and marrow. Getting down to even the what? Thoughts and intentions of the heart. Sufficiency of scripture. Sufficiency of scripture. There will be no human philosophy, no human ideology, no human system of theology, no whatever that can address what the human soul needs more deeply, more thoroughly, more comprehensively than the word of God. A picture there in Hebrews 4 is a medical picture of a doctor wielding a scalpel, cutting to remove and to heal. So we'll leave it at that. I love the looks on your faces. Some of you, the, the wheels are turning. Some of you have a little bit of smoke coming out of your ears. I, really, I, really, I hope that's because of this, not something else. Okay. Keep your finger in Psalm 19. Go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Make sure you're making the connections between 1 Thessalonians 2.13, Psalm 19, and Romans 1. Those are the three passages. They all fit together. Look what Paul says. For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you received it. Not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God. Now, he mentions the word received twice. This is cool stuff. I know that's not very theological to say cool, but this is cool stuff. This these are moments when I'm sitting in my office and I'm studying. I'm all by myself. I got here at five o'clock this morning because I'm old and I woke up at four. So what else am I going to do? So I'm here and I read this. And I get goosebumps and I get chills and I'm just thinking, you know, that's not the Holy Spirit. That's just my emotional reaction to the word. I think, wow, as I was reviewing all this, he uses two different words. In our English, you probably have received and received in verse 13. Some of you may have received and accepted, but it's a little different. The first time he says, when you received the word of God, which you heard That means simply to accept or to hear with the ears. You let us speak. You received it. You gave us an audience. But then look what he says. After you gave us an audience, after you listened to what we said, after you heard the word of God, after you received it, you received it. Not as the word of men, but as the word of God. That's a stronger word. Actually, you accepted it. It means to welcome. It means to embrace. One means to hear only with the ears. The other means to actually hear with the heart. It's talking about their salvation. Some people only hear scripture with their ears and never with their hearts. And what does Romans 10 say? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It cannot be a mere intellectual assent. Yes, that's good. Good teaching. Good preaching. Yeah, I agree. I've had people tell me, even people in my own family say, yeah, I believe there's a God. Yeah, I believe Jesus is God's son. I believe Jesus died on a cross and rose for the dead. I, I believe all that, but I'm not ready really to to give my life to that I've had family members use almost those exact words an intellectual knowledge. No heart knowledge. But he says of the Thessalonians, they weren't listening with just their ears. They embraced it. They were saved. And it tells us later in that verse, it was an act of God that brought them to belief. And it was only after belief, if you look at the end of verse 13, that the word of God could perform its work in them. It was only effectual. It could only do what it was intended to do if they truly believed it was the word of God and not merely the words of men. You should, if you believe that the Bible, the scriptures are not just the words of men, but the words of God, there should be a certain level of trembling within your soul, a certain level of holy fear within your being as you stop to think. This is really God's word. These are the words and the thoughts that God wanted us to have. God has spoken Because when God speaks, he expects to be heard and he expects to be obeyed. That's what the sinful heart doesn't like. The obedience part, the submission part, the the bowing down in humility, worshiping part. And by the way, even for some of us who have been Christians, I've been a believer, a follower of Jesus now for uh, about 45 years. But, But even still for some of us, that following part is still hard, isn't it? We tend to keep a lot of it on the intellectual level, the brain, the head level, uh, and not in the heart. Let's begin with the end. We always rush through the ending. I don't even know how much. I, I want to encourage you to take home your packet of notes and read over those. And there's questions at the end for your CPR groups. Uh, or if ladies are going to enter into a triad, and maybe you could discuss these. Or parents with your kids, put this down on their level. Talk to them about this. Uh, But on uh, page six, uh, my fancy scribbled numbers in the corner. Some questions to chew on. Based on what we've already reviewed and and what you're going to read on your own. Just think about some of these questions. Number one, what does it mean to hear the word of God with your heart? And how is that different than just hearing it with your ears? Another good question for this message today is how is the Bible different from any other book ever written? Use the scriptures to support what your answer is. Skip number three, go to number four. This is really where it comes home to roost. Think about this. The way a Christian treats his Bible is how he regards God and Christ, because the Bible is God's written word and Jesus is the living word. How can we treat our Bible to demonstrate our honor and respect for God and Christ? And how can we disrespect our Bible to demonstrate how we disrespect God and Christ? It made me think you know, uh, I've spoken to quite a few Muslims through the years, and uh, even on Friday, uh, you know, Lisa leaves to go to her second job, and I always sneak off and go somewhere to eat, usually, and tell her, sorry. Oh, you found the receipts. Yeah, I got busted on that one. Uh, she does our finances, so she knows it all. Okay. Um, but I left here and I went over to Anaheim, only six miles from our house. We live in Buena Park. But on Ball Road between Magnolia and Brookhurst, uh, there's a lot of Mediterranean, Middle Eastern people groups that live in that area. Uh, Lebanese, uh, Syrian, Egyptian, you know. Uh, and I love their food. It's good. So I went to Zanku Chicken. You ever been to Zanku Chicken? They have them all over the place around LA. Please go to Zanku Chicken. It's so good. Then, right next door to this location is the Lebanese bakery Sarkis. So, I had to go in there too, you know, and spread around the money. But even at Zanku Chicken, there were several uh, Middle Eastern families there. And uh, there was a group of four younger men. And I saw that they had a Quran and they were discussing and talking and all that. And I had my uh, James Montgomery boys. Commentary on Psalm 19. So I'm sitting here, but they were over here. And uh, so, you know, this is how I witness. I put that like this. And I was reading this. So or you hold it up like this, you know, and you're reading. You know, so so if they see what I'm reading, that's witnessing, right? No, that's cowardly witnessing. But, but anyway, it made me think I do know. Do you know that the Muslim people, if you're a good Muslim? The Quran in your home is the highest book in the house. No book is allowed to be higher than the Quran in your home. So they find the highest shelf or the highest place in the home and they put the Quran up there. And it got to me, got me thinking about how do Christians treat their Bibles? And, and beyond that, not just the Bible, but the word of God. Uh, I mean, do we hold our Bible to be so precious to us? You know, at the end of Psalm 19, he says the word of God is more precious than gold. Uh, It's more it's sweeter than honey dripping off the honeycomb. Is that how we think of our scriptures? Uh, Our Bibles look at number seven, question number seven. In the process of growing in the Christian life and deepening your relationship with God, approximately how much emphasis have you placed on reading the Bible itself and how much time? Or emphasis, have you placed on reading other Christian books or materials? If the scriptures are sufficient in giving us the answers for living life, what importance do the following play in our Christian walk? Advice from others, sermons or Bible classes, our feelings, our conscience, our inward impressions and hunches or changes in our circumstances. In other words, as you think about how to grow as a Christian or being a Christian, one of the key questions is how much time do you spend in the Bible itself? The word of God, just taking it and sitting down and reading. So keep those questions go over them. Good news and bad news. Which do you want first? That always take the bad news first. I was one of those guys in speech class. I would always volunteer to go first. How many are like that? You go first. You're done for three days and you sit there and make fun of everyone else. It's great. I encourage you to go first. All right. All uh, right. The bad news is you have a pop quiz. You should know what these terms mean. The good news, all the answers are in your packet. So you can just pull those out. We should know what the inspiration of scripture is, what it means that it's breathed out from God. Right. We should know what the inerrancy of scripture is, meaning it contains absolutely no errors. And these are things the Bible teaches about itself. We should know that the Bible you have is infallible. What does that mean? It means that it is always effective for what its purpose is. Isaiah fifty-five eleven says your word has gone out and it will not return empty. It will always accomplish what I intend it to do. That's what it means to be infallible. The authority of scripture. Oof, that's probably the one if you're going to leave one off this list, that's the one we don't want on the list, right? What does it mean when we say the Bible is authoritative? Authoritative over who? Raise your hand if you if the Bible holds authority over you. Yeah. And you know what? If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, the Bible is still authority over you. You either talk with the Lord about that today or he'll talk to you about that at the judgment seat. Because the scriptures tell us that at the name of Jesus, someday every knee shall bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Even those who are rebelling and rejecting the authority of God as revealed in Scripture are under its authority and held accountable to it. So think about that. The authority of Scripture, how does that impact the way you live your life every day? If the Bible holds authority over you. Yeah, it's tough, isn't it? It's kind of scary. I see a lot of heads going like this. Believe me, if I was sitting out there, I would be like this, "Oh, where is that passage? Where is that passage?" Yeah, it's tough because we don't always live that way. Those are the key texts that talk about these things, and they're all in your notes somewhere. We've already looked at Second Peter one. A lot of us know Second Timothy three, right? All Scripture. Is breathed out by God or inspired by God and is profitable for. And then I always have Victor quote the list because I can't remember it. Uh, we did Hebrews 4.12. Second Peter 1, three says that the knowledge of God is revealed and scripture has given us everything we need for life and godliness. It's sufficient. It's sufficient to live a life that's pleasing to God. You have it in front of you. Right. That long list. Thank you. Yeah. Very cool. You are right. I can always forget the list or I get it mixed up. Back to Psalm 19 to wrap this up this morning. And I will direct your attention to. In your packet, I want you to see. starting on page three of your notes. We're not going to go over everything, but I want you to know you have it. Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11, give us six qualities of Scripture and six performances of Scripture. Remember, Paul told the Thessalonians that when because you believe, the Word of God performs its work in you. Hebrews 4.12, it's living and active. There is an active Working of God in your life that comes only through the Scriptures. And I know I've said this before, but I can't stress it enough. God cannot work in your life if you are not in the Scriptures. The Holy Spirit is not a feeling. The Holy Spirit is a person. And Paul already mentioned earlier in 1 Thessalonians that the Holy Spirit does not work without The conjunction or the partnership of the word of God. A lot of Christians want to live the Christian life, live for God, do Christian things, but not be in the word. Well, it's impossible. It's impossible. It's active, it's living, it's performing. He says the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul in verse seven. The word law there is the Hebrew word Torah, talking about instruction, direction and teaching. It's a picture of trying to shoot an arrow. It's like a teacher whose aims is to hit the target and achieve specific goals in the lives of his students. Isn't that interesting? God uses his word to achieve specific goals that he has for you in your life. And you're never going to meet those goals if you're not in his word. It says It's perfect. In other words, it's blameless or it's flawless. That word there in verse seven uh, says the law of the Lord is perfect. That word perfect there carries the idea of God's word is complete. It doesn't need any revision. It doesn't need any improvements. It doesn't need to be supplemented by any outside philosophies or psychologies or other belief systems. It can stand on its own to do what it's supposed to do. And you have the list read through the notes, please. The testimony of the Lord is sure it makes the wise, it makes the simple man wise. The precepts of the Lord are right, making the heart to rejoice. The commandments of the Lord are pure. The commandments of the Lord enlighten our eyes. Look at page five of your notes, letter E and verse nine of Psalm 19 it says the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Now, that's an unusual name for scripture, right? The fear of the Lord. Technically, it's not a name for scripture. But what is the psalmist doing? He's addressing the importance of scripture in the proper worship of God. Because the fear of the Lord in the Bible isn't talking about being afraid so much as it's talking about deep respect, reverence and honor. And we deeply respect and reverence and honor the scriptures because they are the word of God. It's God revealing himself to us in a divine special way. Then the judgments of the Lord are true. They're altogether righteous. Sometimes we don't like God's judgments. That's a judicial language there. God's verdicts. Like it's a court scene. Uh, but it says that they're always right and they're always righteous. So when Paul Thank God that the Thessalonians, when they heard the word with their ears, that they then heard the word with their hearts. And then that word of God, not the word of man, began to transform their lives. I cannot urge you deeply and strongly enough. To simply, each and every day, pick up your Bibles and read. Nature is God's wordless book. It tells us that he's there. But the scriptures are God's witness book. How we know him personally. How we know him relationally. How we know him deeply. You may think, I don't know how all that works. I don't really know either. A lot of it is a mystery how the spirit works. But I do know from personal experience that as I spend time reading quietly by myself my Bible, that it changes me. It changes me. It's performing its work. So here's our closing question today. How must we adjust our thinking and living as Christians? In light of what Psalm 19 says about scripture. What is your attitude toward scripture? What is your attitude toward the word of God? Has your heart kind of become dull of hearing? Has it really, as you think about scripture and you think about the Bible because you've neglected it so long that you're just living on fumes? That it has kind of become just ordinary words of man. Or every time you open your scripture or hear the scripture, you realize this is God's word. It's God's word. Then how can we daily live under the authority of Scripture? How can we live under the sufficiency of Scripture? How can we hear with our heart God's word instead of just with our ears? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I'm tempted to pray for myself first because I see myself as the one in greatest need. Because I know my sinfulness. I know my shortcomings. I know my neglect of the word. I know my ignorance of the word. I know my rebellion against your word. I pray that you would cleanse me from all of those sins. Father, I know I'm not alone. I know there are many who belong to you who have neglected the Bible. Who have had incorrect thoughts about the Bible that they hold in front of them. Uh, we struggle. Many of us don't stand in awe and reverence and respect of Scripture. We don't think of it as your marching orders. We don't understand these are your commands. We, we don't grasp that these are your very words that you wanted recorded on paper for us to have. We shouldn't take a cavalier attitude towards scripture. And we shouldn't trifle with it as if it was ordinary. Uh, We shouldn't grow accustomed to it to the point that we dishonor it. Father, help us, please. And the only way to change that is to spend more time in the scripture. So I pray, Father, your spirit would deeply convict us to just open our Bibles each day. And read and starting with the gospel of John is a great place to start for folks that have never done that before. Help us, Father, to sit quietly and read to think about what we've read and to meditate upon it. And then, Father, we pray that your word would be heard with our ears, that we would embrace it for eternal salvation. And that then it would begin performing its work in us as it did in the Thessalonians accomplishing much with the issues of life, the struggles of life, living life in a difficult world in a way that's pleasing to our Heavenly Father. Something only the Scriptures can address. Help us to dive deeper. Help us to be brave and courageous to defend it and to not be ashamed, but to really believe and embrace with our hearts that these words are the words of God. So we thank you, We praise you. We praise you that you exist. We praise you that as we look at nature, we see your glory, we see your power. But even more than praising you that you exist, we praise you that you have spoken. And that you have spoken to us and revealed yourself in written word in our scriptures. We exalt you. We worship you. We praise you as we do your Holy Spirit and your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Okay, hey, thanks for being here today.